It is attained by a righteous life. Thank you, and God bless you. All right, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you. I am excited. We are entering the fall season. Got to wear a sweatshirt a couple times this week. That's a good sign. Good things, cool weather to come. Uh, but today, uh, we are, uh, uh, I'm going to be telling you a story, uh, and we're going to be in Genesis uh, 43 to 45. So if you have your Bibles, you want to get, you want to get there. I'm going to be covering a, a lot of material. Uh, and if you remember, um, uh, we've been, uh, we've been covering the life of Joseph. And we're only two, we only have, two, after this week, we only have two more sermons uh, in this series on Joseph, uh, and then we're going to be entering into a series around uh, uh, some key themes of vision for the life of our church. Uh, but we only have uh, two more sermons after today on Joseph. And if you remember, Joseph is a man uh, who encountered God in the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. Right? I mean, Joseph, Joseph went through it. And today, I think what we're going to see is really what is the, the literary climax of the story, right? It started in uh, Genesis 37, uh, and, this, and, and today um, is, is really where it really all comes together. And what we're going to find is at the summit of this story is this theological gem, right, that points actually beyond the story of just Joseph's life, beyond the story of just the, the, the people of Israel, all the way into the future of what Jesus came to do. And so Joseph is a beautiful picture uh, of, of, of a Christ figure in the Old Testament. And this story that we're going to look at today really exemplifies uh, just how profound that is. It's a quarter of the book of Genesis is about Joseph. And so we're building up to the heart of this particular narrative. And so if you remember Joseph's story, as with many families, uh, Joseph had uh, some very beautiful things but also some very broken parts of his story. Uh, his family had a rich heritage of faith, but it also had an ugly heritage uh, of sin. Uh, so Joseph appears in Genesis 37 at the age of 17, and he repeatedly acts righteously, which is kind of hard to believe because he had such a difficult upbringing. He was the 11th of 12 sons. He was favored by his father, Jacob, but that didn't serve him very well. That actually served him uh, in, in such a way that he was despised by 10 of his brothers. Uh, Jacob had 11 brothers. One of them was a full brother. Uh, his name is Benjamin. And then 10 were half-brothers. And he, was the, um, he and his younger brother, Benjamin, were the youngest of the 12 uh, brothers. And so... You know, we, we talk about blended families. That's a term that you're probably familiar with. Joseph wasn't simply in a blended family, which that comes with some, some challenges in and of itself. But Joseph was in a complex blended family. Uh, it included um, two wives and two concubines. It included polygamy as part of their one household. So, so all of these women, all of these sons are all living under the same house. And so Joseph's father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather, as I said before, were very, they were favored by God, but they were also men with significant flaws. I mean, if you trace the, the life of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down into Joseph's story, 
uh, you're going to see patterns of manipulation, secrecy, jealousy, favoritism all throughout his family line. And you know, earlier in chapter 37 of Genesis, we find out that his brothers wanted to kill him. Well, this isn't the first time uh, within their generation that brothers wanted to kill the other brothers. In fact, the, the attempt had been made previously with Jacob and his brother Esau. But now, in chapter 43, we, found, uh, we find Joseph betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, accused of rape, lied about, thrown in prison, but now things have changed for him. Uh, he now finds himself miraculously in a position of power in Egypt, face to face with the brothers that has sought his destruction. Now, I want to warn you before I get into the story that this is not an ordinary story. Again, at the heart of this story is the truth about God that I'm not exaggerating has the potential to transform your life. It has the potential to transform your relationships. It can actually change the culture of your household. What we're going to see in this story has the ability to change communities, and it has historically. It has the ability and will transform our world. And the truth that is at the heart of this story is the truth of reconciliation and forgiveness. So I'm going to tell you the story, and then I'm going to spend some time talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. So I want to cover the story, uh, and then I want to kind of put my, my pastor's hat on uh, and talk to you about some practical aspects related to forgiveness and related to reconciliation. So I'm going to tell this story in, uh, in five different scenes uh, that's going to cover uh, two and a half, uh, actually three, three and a half chapters. Uh, so stick with me. Have your Bibles open. Be ready to take some notes. Uh, as we jump into our first scene, let me pray for us, all right? Jesus, I ask for your help. There is a gem here that, God, we don't want to miss. And generations will be impacted by our ability to grapple with and walk by faith in the truth of forgiveness and reconciliation. And so, God, I pray that that we will be careful how we listen. I love that Charlie started the, the service this morning focusing on Mary's heart, a heart that decided what was needed most was to hear from Jesus. And I pray that that would be the disposition of our hearts as we enter into your text, as we enter into your story. May our hearts be open to hear from Jesus. And Jesus, may you be glorified. Amen. All right, so I'm not going to have the text on the screen. I'm going to give you the, the verses where the story is being told. Uh, and you can uh, please, there's a lot of details that I am going to miss uh, because I'm kind of doing a big picture, big overview. Um, so uh, scene one is convincing Jacob to send the brothers back to Egypt. That has to happen first. The famine has continued uh, and the family is in need of more grain. In fact, we find out that they're only in year two of a seven-year famine. And so they've already gone to Egypt, already gathered grain. They already had to purchase it. That was, uh, that was uh, the last time I preached two weeks ago. I covered that in chapter 42. They've returned. They ate all that they got from Egypt. Now they have to go back to Egypt for a second time. So the 10 had come. 
once Joseph, and if you remember, Joseph had held Simeon in prison uh, until the brothers were to return back to Egypt, which all of that is part of Joseph's plan, which is going to unfold uh, over the next two chapters. And the problem is this, that Benjamin would need to go with them to Egypt in order to get more grain. Jacob, the dad, is unwilling to release his youngest, his favorite son. Um, and so Joseph is reluctant, or Jacob is reluctant to release Benjamin into the care of the now nine brothers. Remember I said before, uh, there, are, um, there are 12 brothers, but one have been sold into slavery. The other is in prison. Uh, and Benjamin won't, be, uh, Benjamin won't be released to the nine. So the tension at the beginning of chapter 43 is in how can we convince Jacob to send uh, Benjamin uh, with us? And if you remember, Reuben had tried at the end of chapter 42, and he had said, listen, take my two sons. If you take my two sons as security, then you know we'll go and we'll make sure we bring them back. That didn't persuade Jacob um, so now Judah steps up, uh, and Judah is going to work on persuading his dad in order to send Benjamin. So there's a forceful appeal by Judah, um, and it's so forceful that it's actually met with a rebuke uh, by Jacob, saying in verse uh, 6 of 43, you have dealt wrongfully with me. However, Judah succeeds in convincing him uh, because Judah does one thing. He says he puts his own life on the line if Benjamin is not brought back safely, right? So where Reuben was willing to put his son's life on the line, Judah is willing to put his own. Uh, and he also basically says to uh, his dad, listen, this is a life and death situation. So your concern for Benjamin's life, if we don't go get grain, we die, right? If we do go get grain, yes, there's a risk of death, but there's certain death if we stay. That seems to be persuasive. Uh, and so then Jacob is willing to release Benjamin. And so then they set off and they are on their way. They are on their way to Egypt. And this is all part, this is all part of Joseph's plan to get his brother Benjamin to Egypt with him. So as they were leaving, Jacob wisely suggests some ways to secure favor with the ruler of Egypt. Remember, they don't know it's Joseph. So he's like, listen, take some stuff with you. Make sure you take some extra money. Here's some fresh produce from the land of Canaan, right? So you can kind of sweeten the deal as you have this conversation, which if you remember uh, Jacob's story, this is what he did with Esau, same sort of thing, kind of sending some, some nice gifts ahead of him uh, as a way of, uh, uh, of achieving favor with, with someone. So uh, Jacob then blesses them. Uh, and they are on their way to Egypt, which then leads us to scene number two, uh, which is in Genesis 43, 16 to 34. This is a party with the governor of Egypt. And so they get to Egypt, and they have a conversation with Joseph. Um, and so the meeting between Joseph and his brothers is entirely arranged uh, by Joseph. He planned to have them over to his place for dinner. And he laid out the table uh, in their birth order um, so that they would be stunned by, you know, his wisdom of how would he know their birth order? Well, he knew because uh, he was the 11th son. But they didn't know that at this point. Uh, and so, um, but Joseph did this not just for hospitality purposes to bless his brothers, uh, but also there was a design on Joseph's part 
to put the brothers at ease and set them up for phase two of his operation, which is going to come up in chapter 44. So the invitation to dinner kind of strikes the brothers wrong. Uh, I think they think that they are being set up, so they have fear as they go to Joseph's house, thinking, if you remember in the previous story, that when they left Egypt, they found the money uh, in their bags of grain, also the money they had used to purchase the grain. So uh, they quickly put a story together to assure the Joseph steward that, hey, we, didn't, we, we brought money back. Actually, we brought double the amount uh, we, you know, we don't know how it happened, and we, we want you to understand that we didn't, you know, so they are afraid. I think they're thinking it's kind of like a, a Godfather movie where there's a feast, and then all of these bad things are happening around them. Like, Joseph has this, uh, this, this plot lined up for them, and he's bringing them close um, and going to bring harm to them. But anyway, um, so what he does uh, is um, he sets them up. They start coming to their house. They have this conversation with the steward, and the steward tells them, don't be afraid. I've received your money. Your God and the God of your fathers has put the money in the bag. Wasn't us. God gave it to you. Um, and you would think this would have eased their concern, right? There's like, hey, the, the money's been returned. Don't worry about it. Um, but that's not going to ease the concern of the brothers because do you remember what the brothers had interpreted? The brothers had interpreted that God was against them, that God was punishing them. So now God, if God is uh, giving them their money in return and God is going to be punishing them, then God is setting them up for something even worse. So Joseph turned his attention as his brothers then come to the house. Uh, Joseph greets them, asks about his dad, and then turns his attention to his brother Benjamin, who he now sees for the first time. Uh, and as he does that, he's so overcome with emotion uh, that he has to separate himself for a little bit, cry it out, and then be able to re-engage them again uh, as the dignitary that he is, um, he is, and also wanting to portray to them. Um, so he had, again, set the table. They had to eat separately from Joseph. So that's what I like about this, uh, this artistic rendering of the scene, right? You see the brothers at the lower table. You see Joseph at the upper table. Uh, and they had to eat separately. They couldn't eat together. He's maintaining the, the illusion of being completely distinct from this group of people, being superior to them uh, as he is a ruler in Egypt. Uh, the, the Egyptians could not eat with the Jews. And so as the, picture, uh, as the picture represents, they're eating separately. And eventually Joseph... Um, Eventually, Joseph wins over this reluctant group of brothers. Uh, I think he gives them good food and probably some good wine, and it says that they are eating and making merry, and they're having a good time. I think they're stunned by Joseph's wisdom of putting them in a birth order, uh, and, all, and they give, he gives extra favor to Benjamin, extra portions to Benjamin, uh, his younger uh, brother, his full brother, uh, and all of this, again, setting the bait for tomorrow's trap, uh, which starts in Genesis uh, 44. So this is our third scene. Joseph tests his brothers a second time. The first test was, uh, would they sacrifice themselves, right, to protect their father? Uh, and Simeon was willing to do this. Now, Joseph has set them up for a second, a second test. And one more test was necessary before Joseph could disclose himself to his brothers, because what Joseph is looking to discern 
right, is where are, where is my brother's heart? Where, where is their disposition? Are they repentant? Another way of saying it is reconciliation really possible? Because if you remember, Joseph has forgiven them already. This is an issue of forgiveness. Joseph has done that. That already happened. We covered that already. So Joseph has forgiven them. The question is, can he reconcile with them? And the only way to reconcile with them is if they have had a heart change. And to this point, Joseph's not sure. So this test is going to set them up to demonstrate has, in fact, their heart changed. So Joseph, again, the mastermind, a planner, he devised a strategy that would set the brothers up to be in the exact same situation that they were before with Joseph. Think about it. They would, he was going to set them up, right? He was going to, the first part of his plan was he was going to load up their bags with grain. He was going to return their money a second time into their bags of grain. So they would have the food they would need. They would have the money, but he was also going to hide the king's cup in Benjamin's bag, right? That's what the pictures, you know, you see Benjamin like, hey, I don't know what that is. And the other brothers, like, they're upset, they're sad, right? So he's going to hide the cup of the king, uh, his cup, in Benjamin's bag, uh, and then Benjamin will be labeled a thief. Uh, and so it would set the brothers up then to have wealth, to have provision, but to be minus one brother. So would they go home satisfied? Would they go back to Jacob and just be like, sorry, we lost one, but hey, we got good news is we got gain, right? We got the food we need. We even got our money back. We should be in good shape now, right? That was the exact same scenario uh, that they were in They were in before. Money in their pockets, a brother enslaved, will that satisfy them and they return to their dad? Well, so what Joseph did is he had his steward follow after the brothers after he had set them up, and the king's steward was harsh with them. Why would you repay good with evil? The brothers respond, God forbid. They protest their innocence that, listen, I guarantee no one has stolen anything. Uh, and then they, uh, they, and the steward declares, uh, oh, and then they promise, listen, if any one of us has stolen anything, you can kill all of us. And the steward's like, I don't want all of you. I just want the culprit that has stolen, uh, stolen what is ours. And so the, the steward declares them uh, guilty, uh, and they search their bags of grain. And of course, the cup is discovered in Benjamin's uh, bag of grain. And the final test has begun in the same fashion as the first deception with hiding things in the bag. Uh, and they're going to expose, Joseph has masterminded this thing to expose them without ambiguity, right, of the genuine attitude of the 10 brothers toward their youngest Benjamin. What are they going to now do? Benjamin is enslaved. They have the money. They have the grain, right? Simeon has been released to them. The 10 brothers are back together again. This same 10 that had sold Joseph into slavery in order for their personal gain, what are they going to do now? I mean, cynically speaking, they could return to their father with a clear conscience, right? I mean, Jacob had already pretty much said, hey, I'm going to be bereaved anyway, right? So Jacob was already in despair. They could reason, hey, God had brought, in, brought this pain on us. Let's just, you know, uh, let's not push our luck here. Let's just head back, right? All of that was in front of them, and Joseph is testing their loyalty to Benjamin, 
and their father's favor by framing them and giving them an easy way out. It's brilliant on Joseph's part. Well, that moves us to our next scene. What are they going to do? Joseph's brothers, they pass the second test by demonstrating true repentance. So the brothers return to Joseph, and they begin to plead for the life of Benjamin. They don't take the easy way out. And in, in so doing, they say that God has found out their guilt. They interpret what's going on as punishment for the wrong that they had done to Joseph. The brothers had changed. They were repentant. And then Judah, again, asserts himself. He steps up, demonstrating his role as the, he's not the oldest, but he's the spokesperson. He's the leader of the brothers. And Judah, again, offers uh, all their lives in exchange for Benjamin. I mean, think about the offer he puts on the table. Listen, you can take all 10 of us in exchange for that one. When a couple decades earlier, they were willing to trade in that one, meaning Joseph, for personal profit. Now they're willing to give up their freedom for the freedom of their younger brother. So Joseph is just seeing all of this played out right in front of them, getting to see the demonstrated repentance of his brothers. And then Judah, is, here's again, listen, I'm not interested in all of you, only the copper. He says, just take my life. Just take me. Again, Judah offers himself as an expression of love and concern, not just for Benjamin, but also for his father, knowing that if they are to return without Benjamin, they knew what that did to Jacob the first time with Joseph, and they think this, is, this will be his undoing. Like, he will not make it through this grief. So for the life of my father, please release Benjamin and take me. Judah actually refers to his father 14 times in his speech, showing a sympathy that has melted uh, that will eventually melt uh, Joseph's facade. The contrast, think of the contrast between Judah now in this part of the story versus Judah in chapter 37. Do you remember what Judah did in chapter 37? It was Judah's idea to turn a profit on the sale of Joseph. Hey, let's not kill him. Let's make some money off the deal. Right now, now Judah is willing to exchange his life for the freedom of his younger brother. So, in retelling the story in, in verse 28, uh, Judah even talks about what they had done to Joseph and his grief over that. Uh, and this is a long speech by Judah, uh, but it ends with a turning point in the narrative. Because Joseph then responds to Judah's, uh, to Judah's story, to Judah's plea, uh, and he reveals himself to his brothers. He lets them know that it's him, Joseph. He starts weeping. He has seen their hearts change. He has seen now love demonstrated for Benjamin, love demonstrated for his father, Jacob. He clears the room of all of the Egyptians, so it's just him and his 11 brothers. He weeps so loud that the attendants are concerned with what's going on inside the room. This is Joseph's moment. This is Joseph's moment to, to stick it to him, right? I mean, he has all the resources of Egypt at his disposal. 
and they deserve punishment, right? I mean, the grief they caused their dad, the pain they caused to Joseph, right? This was Joseph's moment to to get them. But out of that weeping, and I'm sure as they hear Joseph disclose who he is, and then they see him seemingly uncontrollably weeping, they're thinking, what is going to happen? And out of that weeping, he reveals to them forgiveness. He offers them reconciliation. And he says, come close to me, but the brothers are reluctant. The brothers are are concerned. They're, They're rightly thinking, what's going to happen? We know what we did to this guy. We believed God is going to punish us. He now has the opportunity to do that. So what happens in this passage is Joseph then has to explain why is it in this moment when what you deserve is punishment, when at least what you deserve is enslavement, and I'm going to offer reconciliation. What's the reason for that? How is that possible? And so Joseph goes into an explanation, and what he explains is what we talked about two weeks ago. He explains the providential hand of God. And he says, don't grieve or be angry with yourselves. Can you believe that? Guys, don't don't be hard on yourselves. Don't grieve or be angry with yourselves. God sent me to Egypt. Three times in his speech, he affirms the providential hand of God that had sent him to Egypt to prepare and save the family. Not only had God sent him to Egypt, but he had made him Lord of Egypt, right? Reminding the brothers, chapter 37, verse 8. Remember when they scoffed at Joseph because of his dream? Or like, would you ever have dominion over us? Well, guess what? He does now. And even though the tool that sent him to Egypt was the, 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 the pride, the greed, the dishonesty, the hatred of his brothers, God went before him and sent him to Egypt. His speech is all about the providential work of God. So he tells them, you've got to tell father, this is verse 13, you've got to tell my father of all my honor in Egypt. Tell him that I'm okay. Tell him that you've seen me. Hurry, bring him here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck and then he kissed all his brothers and wept with them and after that they had an extended conversation before he sends them back to gather the dad, to gather Jacob. So the passage closes with a brief report of a tearful reunion. It began emotionally as Joseph had continued to weep and Benjamin weeps, but the brothers are united again. So how is it that Joseph could forgive? The answer is in providence. It was the conviction of Joseph that the unseen hand of God, the will of God, not the hand of those 10 brothers that had sent him to Egypt. That's what enabled him to forgive. And we called that two weeks ago, that part of providence, we call that concurrent providence, when God works with his creation to accomplish his purposes. So this hope in the providential work of God is the basis of all reconciliation. 
Without it, there would be only bitterness and blame. That's what A.P. Ross says uh, about believing in the providential work of God. That when we trust that God is in charge, not another person, that becomes the foundation by which we could ever have reconciliation with someone who has wronged us. And we know Joseph has gone through this because in chapter 41, he had named his son Manasseh, which means God enabled him to forget his troubles, right? God had set him free from his past, or, and then he named his next son Ephraim, meaning um, God had made him fruitful in the land of his suffering, right? So Joseph was able to extend forgiveness because he had seen the unseen hand of God behind all of his circumstances, Joseph makes forgiveness possible only because he believes in God's providential work. He had laid the foundation for reconciliation with his brothers in chapter 41 when we see Joseph willing to forgive his brothers. So forgiveness, right, is the groundwork for reconciliation, there would be no reconciliation with his brothers without Joseph's previous repentance. And in the climax of the story, in the testing of his brothers, we see another ingredient that is necessary for the reconciliation. Do you know what that is? Forgiveness is necessary. Forgiveness plus something is going to equal reconciliation in this story. It's forgiveness of Joseph plus the repentance of his brothers is going to lead to reconciliation. You need both of those for reconciliation. You see, forgiveness is a one-way street. Like, I, I can forgive someone who's wronged me, whether they're even aware of it or not, right? That's forgiveness. But reconciliation is a two-way street. So in order for Joseph to be reconciled to his brothers, there had to be repentance on their part. Forgiveness on Joseph's part plus repentance on their part laid the foundation for the reconciliation that we see here in chapter 45. So reconciliation comes through forgiveness. Reconciliation comes through forgiveness and forgiveness through the recognition of the sovereign work or the providential work of God. When the one who has been wronged can see that behind their pain, behind their suffering, they can see as God sees them, they can perceive them as God had planned them to be, then they're able to offer forgiveness. But anyone who bears a grudge and hopes in retaliation to bring punishment on someone else, right? they have not come to appreciate the providential work of God in their lives. So without faith, or another way of saying it, without the perspective of providence, no forgiveness is possible. And without forgiveness, there's no potential for reconciliation. So Joseph had faith in the providential work of God. And that has gained, um, that gives us insight into what is necessary for breaking a cycle of hatred and retribution. 
because he sees a broader setting for the pain of his circumstances. And that is when he declares, God sent me ahead of you. So that's our story. And as I said uh, at the beginning of our time together, uh, as I said, this is a story about reconciliation. And there's some ingredients about reconciliation that, that we can't ignore. And that's what I was just talking about, that reconciliation is deeply connected to repentance, but they are not the same thing. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. So the brothers bring repentance and Joseph brings forgiveness. That creates the fertile environment for reconciliation to happen. You cannot reconcile on your own. Joseph couldn't reconcile on his own. That's why he had to test his brothers. That's why he had to see if repentance was truly in their heart. That's why he had to set them up with the same scenario to see if truly they were repentant. So I told you at the end of our time, I wanted to speak pastorally to you. And so here's my question to you. What are the relationships in need of healing in your life? Like, where do they exist for you? I'm sure they do, right? But, But where are the relationships in need of healing in your life? And here's the thing. If God is going to heal those relationships, right, if God wants to bring healing in those relationships, if he wants to bring reconciliation which again, reconciliation is a two-way street. But if God is going to heal relationships, then he's going to start. He's not going to start with reconciliation. He's going to start with forgiveness, just like he did with Joseph. So if God is going to bring healing, it's going to start with your ability to forgive. So I want to spend some time talking about forgiveness Because my guess is that there are people in your life that are in need of forgiveness. There are people in your past that you need to forgive, that you're carrying bitterness towards, you're carrying anger towards. So how do we know if there are people that we need to forgive? Well, the way that we know if there are people to forgive, we track our bitterness, right? Paul's very concerned about bitterness. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Like, close it up. Get it out. Send it away, right? And this is kind of a cycle where it starts with bitterness, the undercurrent of bitterness. And then it builds to wrath and anger and clamor and slander, Right? So we want, to, we want to track bitterness. And bitterness is where you feel hurt, where you feel offended or mistreated, where you have not truly forgiven that person. And bitterness is the beginning stages of anger. And anger and bitterness are a statement of, I have not gotten what I want, or I have not gotten what I deserve. Andy Stanley says this, show me an angry person, or I could substitute a bitter person, and I will show you a hurt person. And I guarantee you that a person is hurt because something has been taken. Somebody owes them something. 
If nothing else, they owe them an apology. And so the bitter person or the angry person has this like core belief deep down in their soul where something has been taken from them where you took my reputation, you, you stole my family, you took the best years of my life, you stole my first marriage, you robbed me of my teenage years or my early 20s, you robbed me of my purity, you owe me a raise, you owe me an opportunity to try, you, you owe me a second chance, you owe me affection, right? Where there is this deep belief that something is owed to them. And the root of bitterness and anger is the perception that something has been taken, something is owed, and therefore what Andy Stanley calls a debt-debtor relationship has been established, where you walk around with a deep conviction of someone owes me something. I deserve something. And I am keeping track of what is owed to me. I am the accounts receivable department. I'm keeping a ledger of the IOU, right? And I won't forget it. And we feel that deep in our soul, justice is required. Do you know why we have that deep in our soul? Because it's godly. It's part of the image of God residing in us is that when there is sin, there must be a punishment. For the wages of sin is death. And deep inside of us, when we have been wronged, we feel that. You owe me something. You have taken something from me. And that's deep within our soul. So how do we know if bitterness resides within us? Well, here's a couple of questions you can ask yourself. And I don't know, maybe if you score three out of five with a yes, then... Uh, maybe that means uh, there's bitterness there. But do you replay in your mind with great detail a negative past event? That could be an example or a reason for your dislike of a particular person. Do you find yourself continually speaking negatively about a person or thinking negative thoughts every time you see them and you're just, it's just below the surface there and you're making sure you don't say it, but it's certainly being replayed over and over in your mind? Do you find yourself creating distance because of annoyance and anger that comes up when you're in that person's presence? Do you, do you find yourself replaying in your mind over and over what justifies your dislike or bitterness or anger towards that person? And have you found that your dislike of someone has been growing over time? I gotta be honest with you, there's some circumstances that I'm walking through right now where I am saying, God, guard my heart from bitterness. Because actually that last one, I see, oh, there's, some, there's something growing in my heart, and God, I, I gotta be careful here. And I've been asking God to, to give me grace and perspective as I walk through uh, some circumstances. So we need to be convinced that this road of unforgiveness and bitterness is a destructive path. I'm not sure we were convinced just yet. So let me ask you this question. What is the impact of living with unforgiveness? Like, so what? You know, like, so, so what if there's people that I need to forgive? So what if there's anger and bitterness, like, growing inside of me? What, what's the big deal? Well, Ephesians 4 
uh, talks about not letting the enemy get a foothold in your life, right? And one of the ways that the enemy gets a foothold in your life is through unforgiveness. So what would this look like? Well, it would look like the enemy getting a foothold in your life through unforgiveness, and so bitterness starts to grow up in you. And so what do we do with bitterness? Well, we have to assuage, we have to find comfort somehow. We have to find life in the middle of this bitterness, so we look to comforting sin patterns. Maybe we attempt to numb the bitterness with drinking or eating or prescription drugs, right, or television or gaming or pornography, right, where we're looking to, to make our life work because bitterness is growing in us. Another reason that we need to walk in a pattern of forgiveness and not, not live with unforgiveness uh, is because um, bitterness is corrosive. Hebrews 12, 11 says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many, right? We can't be one. I can't truly love you if bitterness is growing up in me. We can't function as the body of Christ, caring for one another, if bitterness is growing up in me. But not only is it corrosive in our community, it's also corrosive in our own soul. Uh, Rob Reamer says it like this, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Right? Like it's gonna mess you up to, to live with, with bitterness. And here's the thing bitterness is indiscriminate. You can't walk around with bitterness towards a person and think it's not gonna affect all other relationships. No, no, no. You don't categorize life that way. Bitterness will, will start to uh, reveal itself in relationships. So here's the question every bitter man or woman needs to consider. You ready? How long are you going to allow people you don't even like, people who may no longer be in your life, people who may no longer even be alive, how long will you allow them to control your life? Because if you live with unforgiveness, guess what? They get to perpetually harm you because you're carrying it around and it's corrosive in your relationships. It's corrosive in your own soul. So lastly then, how do we forgive? How do we forgive? Let me run through these quickly. I got eight guardrails to stay on the road to forgiveness. I'm gonna go through them quickly. Here we go. Number one, forgiveness requires that you trust the justice of God. Friends, it is not your job to punish. Remember when I said, right, like there's this deep cry for justice and punishment that God has birthed in you? Well, guess what? God is the perfect judge, not you. It's not your job. Romans 12, 9, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus saith the Lord. So let the perfect God be the perfect judge. Second point. Oh, let me say on the first one, you can feel the anger, right? But that doesn't mean it's your place, right, to exercise judgment. Second, forgiveness requires you trust the grace of God. 
Ephesians 4, 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How can we forgive one another? As Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven you, right? We have the capacity to forgive because we have been forgiven. And think about the equity of the offenses. Like God has forgiven you your idolatry, you then have the capacity to forgive a sin against you. And forgiveness is unconditional. God didn't set it up where I will forgive if you're really sorry, no. Forgiveness is unconditional. Don't attach conditions like if they repent or if they really understand how it affected me or if they change or if they admit that they did something wrong. That's not necessary for you to exercise forgiveness. That would be necessary for you to enjoy reconciliation, but that's not necessary for you to exercise forgiveness because God didn't do that to you. Do you think I have the, the, the knowledge of the depth of my rebellion against God? I don't get that because I don't get how bad I am and how holy God is yet. But yet God extends grace, right? God extends favor, favor that I've never earned. So God did not make the grace he gave you conditional. It is unmerited favor. Third, remember forgiveness is an act of obedience. It's not a feeling. A lot of times we think, well, we'll forgive when we feel like forgiving. No, God commands us to forgive. So if God commands us to forgive, then obey the Father's voice and walk in forgiveness, not because you feel like it. I mean, when are you gonna feel okay about that? When are you gonna feel like, ah, that's no big deal? No, it is a huge deal, and I'll get to that in a minute, right? But, and for God, right, for God, it wasn't a feeling. God had a decisive move to, to attach your sin to Jesus' death, and it's out of that that he offers us forgiveness. So offer forgiveness as an act of obedience, not a feeling. Forgiveness is received as a gift from God. Forgiveness then is offered out of obedience to what God commands. Freely you have been given, freely then give. Fourth, remember, forgiveness leads to healthy boundaries. Remember what I said before, forgiveness and reconciliation, they're not the same thing, right? So forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. So if someone has sinned against you, someone has harmed you, and you offer forgiveness, that doesn't mean now you have no boundaries with that person. God's not calling you just to be victimized all over again. No, 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 right? So, so forgiveness, right, you need to set healthy boundaries. Forgiveness is not living without boundaries. For example, forgiveness and reconciliation, as I said, they're not the same, the same thing. Healthy boundaries come from, listen to this, healthy boundaries come from a healthy identity, right? And so when you understand that God has made you a certain way and it is not right for treat people to treat you different than that, that sets up healthy boundaries for you. Where you say, no, that is inappropriate for you to talk to me that way, for you to interact with my world that way, for you to touch me that way. No, that is inappropriate for you to do that. That's a healthy boundary. That's different than forgiveness, and that also sets healthy boundaries for their identity, right? For you to tell them, it is wrong for you, it is broken for you to treat me that way. 
So by setting healthy boundaries, you actually communicate not only your own dignity before God, but also theirs. All right, number five. Remember, forgiveness is not just a moment, but it is a process. Sometimes the pain returns. That doesn't mean you're unforgiving when that defilement comes back again or when you remember what happens and it, and it hurts all over again or you go somewhere and there's a memory that pops up. That doesn't mean you're not forgiving because you feel dirty again. That's, 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 not, that's not something wrong with you. That just means forgiveness is a process. That's why Jesus um, told Peter that it's not seven times seven, but 70 times seven. Like, this, is, this goes on um, for forgiveness. Uh, Rob Reamer says that forgiveness at times is like an onion, and it comes off in layers. And sometimes the reason that you can't forgive fully is because you don't even know the full offense yet. And sometimes that takes time. So you can only offer forgiveness to the extent that you even understand the offense. And then maybe a few years later, the offense gets deeper. Well, guess what? Then forgiveness needs to get deeper. Or you understand the offense more. Then forgiveness needs to match it. And sometimes forgiveness feels like a process because you're in a relationship with someone who keeps hurting you and they aren't repenting or offering an apology that is commensurate with the offense. But you can still walk in patterns of forgiveness. Number six, as you walk in forgiveness, be sure to grieve your hurts and losses, right? Forgiveness is not a statement of, oh, it doesn't matter oh, that didn't bother me anyway, right? Forgiveness is, is you look at the ugly square in the face and you say, I'm choosing forgiveness, but this really hurts. But this pain is real. You need to grieve over your losses in life, loss of relationship, loss of a dream, loss of reputation, loss of an opportunity, loss of innocence, loss of love, loss of a loved one. Grieve those things. Pay attention to grief and loss. It is essential for God's redemptive purposes. Joseph did it. Right? That's why Joseph was in a position to offer forgiveness the way that he did. Then finally, number seven, offer forgiveness at the level of offense. Again, I borrow from Rob Reamer here. He said, you can't offer a cup worth of an apology to a five-gallon offense, right? So sometimes we have to understand, we have to listen, right? We have to understand that it needs to be part of the conversation to the degree that pain has entered in for there to be an extension of forgiveness. That's not all the time that you have to have that conversation because sometimes you can't even talk to the person and you're still offering forgiveness. But you still need to understand Right, the degree of forgiveness and understand the degree of the offense. Pay attention to it. Give space. Lastly, forgiveness is canceling the debt. Forgiveness is saying, I, I've been keeping close account. You know, I'm the uh, accounts payable, accounts receivable. Like, I understand what's going on here. I'm forgiving the debt. I'm not treating you according to what your sins deserve. Forgiveness is about sending the offense far away and choosing not to act towards that person according to the justice that they deserve. Say, I will set aside the offense. 
where you resolve not to nurse a grudge or rehearse it over and over in your mind. You monitor your self-talk. You monitor what you're thinking about in relationship to that person. And you choose to cancel the debt. I know that's introductory. I know that doesn't answer all the questions that you have. But I want to remind you of Ephesians 4.32. Losing it. There we go. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you. Joseph released his brothers from guilt of their actions because he was clinging to the providential hand of God that had gone before him into Egypt. I'm calling you to forgive. I'm calling you to cancel the debt of those who have sinned against you because of the exact same thing. Lean into the providential hand of God that has led Jesus to the cross so that you can be forgiven that Jesus went before you as your sacrifice so that God could offer to you unmerited favor so that you then can turn to others and do the same. He has set you free. Do not withhold from others what was not withheld from you. Live in the freedom of forgiveness. Trust in the unseen hand of God that has forgiven you. You can do this as, an, as you anchor your perspective in the faith of the unmerited grace of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. There is no other way to walk in patterns of forgiveness unless we truly trust that God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. And here's the beautiful thing. As we do that, like as we do that, like in our relationships, in our households, in our community, and we offer grace and mercy, listen to what happens. The unseen hand of God becomes seen. The invisible work of God of unmerited favor is now on display as we would extend to one another, not based on how, what we deserve or based on our merit, but based on the extravagant grace of God. Let's anchor our faith. Let's anchor our perspective in the grace of God. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for us. So Holy Spirit, I want to ask, I want to ask that you would bring to, to mind names, and faces of those that we need to forgive. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as those names and faces come up, I know that with them will come points of defilement and points of pain. So I pray, Holy Spirit, be gentle to your people, be a comforter. And I pray that we would steward your voice 
and your leadership, and maybe we would write those things down or, or we would be careful to remember what you're saying to us. And I pray that this church community would be very attentive over this next week to take seriously your invitation to be a community marked by forgiveness. That we would put on display what has been so freely and extravagantly given to us. That we would reveal a God who forgives. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would give us the strength I pray also that we wouldn't try and walk through this alone, but we would team up with some others, reach out to, to pastorate leaders or, or pastors or, or truth for living teachers. Uh, we would connect with others, those that are, are discipling. I pray that we connect with others to walk out this journey of forgiveness. So Jesus, be glorified in a community that forgives. In your name I pray, amen.